0: Have you ever had one of those dreams where you're about to be kidnapped by cannibals, or you're teetering at the edge of a cliff to nowhere, or you're about to be squashed by a T-Rex that's attacking your elementary school, or you're being chased by the abominable snow monster, maybe all the above? I Who knows? And, and you try and shout something, usually along the lines of, please help me, and nothing comes out.
1: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I really can't say I have.
1: Okay. Sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, um... Well, good, because they're the worst, Mm -hmm. Um, but surprisingly relevant to this particular podcast, uh, because we all realized in the course of our stories, sometimes you don't know when you're living in a daze until you try and use your voice, um, and then you jolt awake, and you wonder if you've ever truly used it before. But seriously, I can't believe neither of you have... Ever tried so to, to scream in your <laughs> <sleep>. <laughs> I thought it was just a universal thing. I think it's I'm just trying. you. You will sound like an asthmatic teapot. But okay, <laughs> just me. Um, all right. Hi. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm Lindsay Zhang. I enjoy history, Russian novels, and ancient cosmology. I am Ellie Nelson. I like the color yellow,
1: meeting new people, and molecular genetics. I'm Maddie Herman. I like dogs,
2: drawing and painting, and I have a love for orange juice.
1: Welcome to the Modern Story Podcast, episode number two. Today, we're telling stories about reflecting on how we've been conditioned not to use our voices. Oh, wait, 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 you guys, I think... Okay, here, listen to this. One time, I had a dream where I was running down a mountain, a snowy, snowy mountain, and I was being chased by wolves. I was, like, running down to this little cottage at the bottom, and I think maybe then I couldn't scream. Is that what you're talking about? (laughs) Um, yes, possibly. (laughs) That just seems kind of like my life. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, on that note, let's get started with Maddie and her story called Society is Stupid.
2: I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just pretending I do. I don't know what I wanna do with my life, more so how to make a living off an art and business major. I don't know the difference between a credit card and a debit card. I assume a credit card has to do with your credit score, whatever the heck that means. I still get scared every time I have to use my debit card because I fear that it will get declined, again, which means I'm most likely to always have cash. I hate going shopping because I always feel like I look really sketchy, even though it's just me being socially awkward. I also have no idea why it feels more natural to talk in a terrible Australian or British accent than speaking with my American accent. (laughs) Just the other night, I walked into Cub Foods with my friend, and I know at least one person overheard us speaking with our accents when we came through the doors. We both knew we couldn't switch back to our normal voices and be known as those weird girls who go around faking accents, even though that's all we do together. So we kept them until we got back behind the closed doors of her car, where we would be cringing at ourselves the rest of the night. I never know where to eat or what to eat, so I play nose-goes with my friends, whether they want to or not, on who has to pick where we go. But I seem to only choose friends that are indecisive, so we end up going to the same place we always go and never switching it up. Continuing with my indecisiveness, if anyone asks me my favorite things, I can't give them an answer. I always hope in any situation that I never have to pick something because, frankly, I can't even decide on an answer for the random BuzzFeed quiz I came across while studying, asking me to pick one of the four fruits. I can't decide on my favorite color, animal, food, band. This list could literally go on forever. I don't know why I can't choose a favorite show or film, but I can decide that I'm going to learn every word in the movie Starstruck to the point where I can watch the entire thing without sound. Does this count as a special skill I can put on my resume? Anyways, I don't know what I'm doing. I have a fear of the ocean, yet my family can still find ways to get me on a boat by convincing me it won't tip. But the entire time we're on the boat, I feel like we're about to recreate Jaws or sink into the dark blue abyss below us. But even though some days I feel like I'm the only one going through things like this, I know I'm not. Through conversations with friends and family, I realize a lot of people go through similar things and don't ever talk about it. Many people in our society are only given one option in life, and that is to be perfect. You have to be skinny, have good grades, flawless skin, say the right thing, a good stable job, no fears, know what you want, lots of money, the list could go on. But we don't have to follow what society tells us to. It's okay to not have the right thing to say. It's okay to be skinny, not to be skinny, my bad. It's okay to be afraid, but most importantly, it's okay to not be perfect. Mm -hmm.
0: Thanks for sharing that story, Maddie. Um, When when you started to write, um, did you know that it was going to be a piece uh, about the stupidity of society, or did you have that realization during the writing process?
2: Originally, no. I didn't know it was going to be about the stupidity of society, but um, I didn't know how to end it, and so I was just thinking about ways to end this piece, and I came across like thinking, no one knows everything in life, and. They feel like they have to put on, like, a facade that they know everything, they have their life together, and they fall to, like, societal standards of feeling like they have to be perfect at all times. And um, so I thought, like, ending it by saying you're not the only one going through things like this and you don't have to be perfect, more people would try and, like, be themselves in public,
0: if that... Yeah, that makes sense.
1: <laughs> I think this piece is really cool because you're just like going through different ways of how things that just like don't make sense to you. And yet you're at the end. You're like, you know what? This is all kind of dumb. Like, <laughs> why does it have to be this way? So I'm wondering uh, what is, in your opinion, the most stupid part of society? That's my question for you. OK, well,
2: I think the most stupid part is that it just you don't ever feel really accepted or Mm -hmm. you're not really accepted unless you're like very perfect or seem like you're perfect. That is annoying, isn't it? Oh, very (laughs) (laughs) like I have days with my friends where it doesn't affect me and I can like be myself out in public. Yeah. But most days I'm like just struggling to get along (laughs) and I just can't be myself outside of like my friend group. Like if with them, Oh my, when I'm without my friends, like I just become like this very quiet person and I can't like yeah. express myself.
1: Yeah, Does that makes sense. Yeah, sometimes it's hard like when you realize that society has these parameters laid out for you, um, um, and you realize you don't have to live by them, but it's still really hard not to, isn't it? Yeah, yeah.
2: I agree. Um. Well, continuing on, here's Lindsay and her story called "Crossing the Line."
0: I have an innate distrust of door handles. When coming upon an unfamiliar entryway, I assess the placement of the hydraulic hinge and use this data to strategize a method of approach. I find that I have roughly a 50% chance of accuracy when it comes to determining if it is meant to be pushed or pulled. I don't know why someone thought it was a good idea to create a push door handle. I have equal apprehensions when it comes to windows, particularly those with supposed insight into the soul. I don't know why it's easier for me to speak in front of 2,000 people than it is to strike a balance between natural and disconcerting eye contact. But I do know the color of the carpet in almost every Bethel classroom. (laughs) If you greet me in the hallway, there's a fair chance that I don't know where I know you from, but please feel free to weave your name into the conversation at whichever point feels natural to you. It's not that I don't care. But I admit that I've never found a reliable way to transverse the crevasse between small talk and genuine human interaction. This may be the point at which to mention that I was homeschooled. <laughs> One could say that I approach conversation with acquaintances in much of the same way that I approach modern art, or or door handles for, for that matter, <laughs> when I was about 12 years old. I had the misfortune of visiting the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and even as a prepubescent soccer t-shirt-wearing tween who thought that razor scooters were the epitome of cool, I was sure that I did not, and never would know, why there was a urinal in the gallery for sparsely painted canvases. My confusion extended to all-white abstractionism, modern expressionism, and especially to the room full of naked people and paintings, for which I do not know an ism, And which was a deeply disturbing sight for someone who had not yet graduated PG movies. I was sure that I was missing something. This was a nationally renowned art museum, not a mausoleum for dead art, and I was pretty sure that the astounding monetary value of the seemingly untouched canvas, Gallery 3, should have been enough to cover the cost of paint. Nonetheless, no matter how hard I tried to figure it out, I could barely discern how to open the door into the museum, let alone understand the rationale by which value was assigned. Despite these inadequacies, one thing which I did figure out rather quickly was that there is a line between the viewer and the painting, and that by crossing that line, however inadvertently, the viewer provokes accusatory looks, excessive alarms, and sense security guards, and a general sense of mortification. Though I now know that the the urinal is a Dada sculpture pretentiously named the Fountain, I'm no closer to understanding why it was displayed in an art gallery. I don't know what other people see in Duchamp, which I'm missing. I don't know why Balakian expressionism is beautiful, or why rebellion is romanticized. I, I don't know why all white canvases are profound, or why Christianity is now a cult, while atheism... Atheism is basically what everyone thought Scientology was when they were roughly 12 years old. <laughs> and it barely has stereotypes. I don't know what the next artistic age will be named if we have surfa- surpassed postmodern. And I don't know why tradition is the enemy of progress. I mean, I'm sure that modern art is some sort of an allegory, which I, I should be able to comprehend, but I don't. And that's why I've decided that Sometimes it's best to attempt that door handle a second time, even if I feel like an idiot. And maybe it's worth it to look someone in the eye and see past the small talk. Try to figure out why the pipe is not actually a pipe. Perhaps the lines, which we think are meant to protect the art, are actually there to keep the viewer and their scrutinizing curiosity at a distance. And maybe, just maybe it's worth the risk to cross the line.
2: One, two, ready, uh. I just have one question. This is coming from an art major. Uh, <laughs> after that experience in the art museum, did you ever visit any other art museums after that? Or did that just keep you from ever going back to it's one? just so scarring. <laughs> Dramatic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually, I love the MIA. Um, it has pull door handles, by the way, um, and, <laughs> and a astounding, amazing collection of, of ancient to, to modern art. And uh, it is a generalization to say that I don't like any modern art. And, and, and in general, I do prefer. Probably pre-expressionism, but um, Mm -hmm. modern art has has a lot to offer as well, a lot Mm -hmm. of different genres. So I I did generalize quite a bit in my story.
2: (laughs) Gotta agree with you about the (laughs) Duchamp
0: one.
1: well, thank you for sharing your story with us. I especially loved the little comment, like, towards the beginning where you slipped in about being homeschooled. <laughs> I thought it was, like, it was just such a small little, like, offside, but it was perfectly placed. and super witty. Um, so my question is... Um... Like, that's kind of a stereotype, right? That being homeschooled kind of plays into like some sort of social anxiety. And I'm wondering if you actually like agree with that or if that was more of you like playing off of the stereotype.
0: Uh, Yeah, probably the latter. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, um, homeschooling was kind of an excuse to not go outside of my comfort zone as much, Mm -hmm. but. Certainly, that's not the case for everyone. No, yeah. <laughs> so it's I, I've always been a bit more introverted. So. Thank it was, you. It was definitely me, not the homeschool. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> glad we got All that right. cleared up. <laughs> um, so last but not least, here's uh, Ellie and her story called "Irresistible Sun."
1: My eyes are locked with the sky i'm begging my tears to hold on afraid for the cry for help they'll stain on my cheeks i'm begging the blinding sun to drop my to dry my tears before they fall my handset sweat is seeping into my paperback copy of the song poet as i hold my breath and stare through every time i never resisted i've never resisted oh my gosh i've never resisted Okay, wait, let me back up. So here I am. I'm sitting in a circle of heavy metal patio chairs, the kind with a bunch of small holes that suck on the chub of your thighs when you sit and leave little red polka dots on the back of your legs for like at least 30 minutes once you've stood up. The other chairs around me are filled with seven classmates and our beloved professor. She was especially beloved that day since she granted our request to have class outside. You know, since it was irresistibly sunny with the perfect light breeze, just soft enough to turn a few pages in your book, but not hard enough to turn all 300 and half a second as if it's personally harassing you to stop reading. Our agenda for the class is to discuss the assigned chapters from the memoir, The Song Poet. The conversation popcorns around the circle as my classmates take turns reading their parts from the memoir and adding their own two cents into the conversation. I shift my weight, peeling my skin from the million mouths of the chair as I work up the courage to toss my voice into the conversation. Despite the more zenned-out feel the discussion, you know, from the annoying breeze and the burning sun, my heart pounds and my armpits cry as I read the highlighted words off of page 234 and 235. Page 234. He said that day and night... The only sound he heard was a ghost of an ocean he'd never visited, its waves washing in and out. Page 235. There were few hearing aid options for him. The one that might work involved a permanent installation. Another surgery. An implanted device to amplify the hearing from his right ear around his head. Our father was not ready for more surgeries. Instead, he asked. He started asking people to speak up, to speak louder, to his right ear. So it's at this point where I say something about how I've known this ghost ocean for about as long as I can remember, but I've never had the words to name it. I can't hear out of my left ear either, just like B. Yang from the story. I've had six surgeries on that ear to try to fix it. Uh, none of them have worked. Um, I've also never said no to surgery. Or anything, really. When I'm speaking, a heavy whirl of deep emotion begins to spin inside my ribcage. I can feel my voice squeeze like ratchet straps cinching an old mattress onto the flatbed of a rusty Chevy. The tighter, the better. No one wants to run the risk of losing a mattress in the middle of the interstate, and neither do I want to run the risk of losing my cushion of academic words that keep my classmates fooled into thinking I have everything together. I rush to finish my rehearsed sentences of insight so I can reel my voice back into my body. My brain has pitched a personal projector in my head. Scenes of everything I've been through in the hospitals and clinics, everything that's happened to me with my automatic consent are playing at the speed of light on my mind's projector. We need a blood sample. I roll up my sleeve. We need a urine sample. I shove the sterile translucent cup between my legs. We need an x-ray. I contort my sore body. We need you stronger. I run. We need to operate. I count backwards from ten as my mind fizzes away from my anesthetic-filled body. We need to operate. Okay. We need to operate again. Okay. We need to operate again. Okay. Okay. We need to operate again. Okay. I close my eyes, but I can't do anything to shield myself from my own memories. I watch myself grant every nurse, doctor, receptionist, anesthesiologist, surgeon, anyone, really, whatever they asked for with a reassuring smile, sunny eyes, and a little, bobbling, blonde nod. Now? It's three years later. Whenever I stand up to shake the cold, wet, freshly foam-sanitized hand of my doctor, I always have my bright yellow journal tucked into my other hand. I keep track of what they say. I ask lots of questions, and I even get second opinions. The real kicker is this. Sometimes, not very often, but still, sometimes, I don't even smile when the nurse hands me the translucent cup and asks for my pee.
2: So, I remember my dad talking about a bodybuilder, Lou Ferringo, a while back, Mm -hmm. and he was the guy who played Hulk in the 1977 film, and he was a bodybuilder during the 70s and 80s. And he got this hearing implant from this company called Envoy Medical and called the Esteem one. And he couldn't speak beforehand, but after he got it, he can now speak perfectly and like can hear perfectly normal because he couldn't hear beforehand. And um, he, yeah, so he got that. And I was just wondering if you have ever looked into getting that or if you've heard about it.
1: Um, I don't know exactly what the Envoy Medical it, one is, but I have had a few doctors, like, suggest to me um, a Baja implant is what it's called, um, which basically they have to drill a post into, like, the part of your skull behind your ear, and they you can clip a little device on it that like transmits the sound through your skull to your um, hearing organs. Um, this wasn't something that they like told me I had to do, but it's a suggestion. Mm-hmm. And since I can hear perfectly fine out of one ear, it's not bad enough to like get something screwed into my skull, yeah, you know. Okay, I get <laughs> that.
0: So, I, so I
1: haven't <laughs> gone along with
0: that yet. Yeah. Yeah, wow. That that's just that story just gets better every time I hear. It. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I, I was wondering, what do you what do you think it was that prevented you from from saying no or just from refusing surgery yeah. um, before you read the song, poet? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I like grew
1: up uh, going through medical experiences. I had my first surgery when I was like eighteen, sixteen months old. I don't know. I was pretty little. One of the two. Um, and I think just so much of how I was raised was to, like, trust my doctors because I have um, other stuff besides my just my ear um, where I really needed to listen to them for it to be – for me to be healthy. Um, and I think – I just had to rely on them that I, I really didn't know that resisting or asking more questions or just even like getting clarification was really an option. And it's not even that like, when I look back, I wish I would have said no, because a lot of what has been done has there was reasons and it was helpful. And I wouldn't be who I am today without it, but I recognize that. Doctors only know so much and I kind of know my body more than they can. And just like advocating for myself is something that's been really important. So it's not it's not that I wish I would have said no more. I just wish I would have known that that was actually like a legit option. So what have we learned today, guys? Um, I learned it's
2: okay to have your own voice and opinions and to not let things in our
0: life take that away from us. So that you you have so little to lose just from trying to contribute to the conversation. That's it's so important to to add your voice.
1: Yeah. Um, I specifically learned how powerful it can be in the moments that you realize that you can use your voice, and I also realized that door handles are challenging for everyone. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> So we want to
0: thank
2: some people for helping us out on this Modern Story podcast at Bethel University in
0: St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks to Nick Swedland and Alyssa Tay for building the podcast studio and giving us access to it.
2: Thanks to Sam Mulberry, Emma Harville, Abby Pouts, and the two Emmas for showing us how to do a live podcast.
1: We also want to thank the writers who inspired our stories, and we should thank each other for our edits. So, Lindsay, thank you. Maddie, thank you. (laughs) Look for the next episode
0: of Modern Story Podcast. And lastly, go tell your roommate about Modern Story.
1: Tell your, your friends. friends. Oh. Tell your
0: classmates.
1: Tell your Uber driver. <laughs> tell your mom. Tell your ex boyfriend. Tell your mailman. <laughs> tell your gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet it out to the whole world. <laughs>